Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. So what is this choice, this decision that happy couples make that they don't know they're making that can make all the difference in their relationship? Well, the Apostle Paul actually answers this question for us in a letter that he wrote to some non-Jewish Jesus followers in a church in ancient Greece. The church was located in a city called Corinth, was actually started by the Apostle Paul in about 50 AD, about 17 years after Christ's crucifixion. And it was made up, like I said, of mostly Gentile, non-Jewish believers, new converts to Christianity who were still trying to transition from a religion where they worshipped many gods, Zeus, Apollos, Poseidon, those type of gods, to worshiping just one God, Yahweh or Jehovah. And their thinking was, if there's only one God that we worship now, what do we do with all these other gods that we've been worshiping? And so one of the things that the Apostle Paul has to do is help them understand why this one God that they're worshiping now was so different than all the other gods that they had been serving. Because in pagan worship, the gods didn't care about people. They didn't. In, in, in pagan worship, the gods manipulated people. So consequently, pagan religions really had no morality, no ethics. In other words, how you treated other people in this life on this planet didn't really matter in pagan worship. What mattered was making sure the gods were happy. And the way the people made the gods happy was by giving them things, sacrifices, things like animals, crops, precious metals, even children in some of the more extreme pagan cultures. And the whole point was we need to make the gods happy so that they'll take care of us so that our crops will grow, so that we'll win all of our battles when the enemy attacks us. So the Apostle Paul shows up in these primarily Gentile environments, and he's going, okay, this God that I've introduced you to is completely different than the God you've been worshiping, because this God that I introduced you to actually loves and cares about people. Consequently, in order to please this God, you don't make sacrifices. You simply treat people the way that he treats people. That is, you are to love the people around you. And the Apostle Paul introduces this idea that actually Jesus first introduced, this idea of a, of a horizontal versus vertical religion. See, vertical religion, the old version was, I'm going to try to treat God the way he wants to be treated so that he'll be happy with me. The old version, which is the Old Testament version, was if you, then I. That's God saying, if you, then I. But Jesus introduced this new commandment a horizontal religion that says, hey, I'm going to treat you the way that God has treated me. So in the first part of his letter, uh, the first 12 chapters, actually, Paul's basically saying, look, if you want to try to find fulfillment in a vertical religion where you're always wondering if God's pleased with you or not, go ahead, knock yourself out, go for it. But you need to know that Jesus didn't just introduce a new commandment, he introduced a new way of worshiping God, a way, that, a way of worship that measures our love for him not based on what we do for him, but how we treat others, which is the same way that he treats us. And then when he gets to this part of the letter in chapter 13, a part that many of you are probably familiar with, because some of you probably had some, if not all of this chapter, read at your wedding. But when you understand the context of Paul's instructions here, it's really not great wedding literature at all, because when you break it down grammatically and understand the intent of his comments, 
it really kind of takes on a little different meaning. The overall, the overall message of love is still the same. Don't get me wrong. That's still there. But it's the type of love that he's talking about. The type of love that most of us think of when we think of that word love. So let's dive in and read it here. 1 Corinthians 13.1. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay, this sounds sort of weird. What's, what's this all about, this tongues of men or angels? Here Paul's addressing part of that, that vertical religion, that pagan worship, where in their religion, they would oftentimes try to speak the language of the gods or the language of the angels that they were worshiping. So, so he's just finished telling them, okay, if you would like a version of that to be part of your religious experience, that's fine. But look, don't kid yourself. That's not the main thing. That's not the main thing. And even if you could connect with the angels in their own special language, even if you could do that but didn't have love, all that language is nothing but a bunch of noise. A bunch of noise. That's all it is. See, that would be like uh, judging me based on my Bible knowledge or, or judging Kyle based on how well he teaches middle school, right? Or judging Zach uh, by the number of people that he puts under anesthesia before they go to surgery. Actually, we should, judge, we should judge him on how many people he brings out of anesthesia after putting them under for surgery. Seriously, these are all things that can be learned and developed, just like each of you have talents, right? You have talents that you've developed. If you really want to know what kind of person I am, if you really want to know what kind of Christian I am, you should ask my wife or ask my kids. Ask those closest to me. Because a talent or ability is not necessarily a manifestation of spirituality or great faith. Love is always, always, always the bottom line. Paul continues in verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, here it is again, but do not have love, I'm nothing. In other words, Paul says, even if I had the gift of prophecy and could, pre could predict the future and had all this knowledge and, and could explain all the great mysteries of the Bible and was like the smartest person in the room, right? If I had all that, and in addition to all that, in addition to being the smartest person in the room, on top of that, if I had such great faith that I could move mountains, even if I had all that, still, if I didn't have, and here's that phrase again, if I didn't have love, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. Which is another way of saying knowledge does not equal spirituality. If you want to meet someone who's a deep Christian, a truly spiritual Christian, they're measured not by what they know, by what they, but rather by what they show. Right? Because love is the measuring stick for true spirituality. Paul continues in verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not, here it is again, do not have love, I gain nothing. If I gave all I possess, seriously, who does that? Just so I don't feel shallow and selfish here, does anyone else have a hard time with that statement? If I, not 20%, not half, gave all. How many of you would sign up for that? I'm going to give all I have to the poor. Yeah, that's what I thought. Thank you. Right? But it gets worse. Paul continues. And give over my body to hardship. And the hardship Paul's talking about here is being burned or set on fire. In fact, both the good news and living Bible paraphrases say, if I were burned alive for preaching the gospel. Any takers on that one? Yeah, that's what I thought. This is amazing. This is really amazing. Paul says, look, if I gave everything I had to the poor, and then, after giving all of my possessions away, if I was burned at the stake for witnessing for Jesus, if I did all that, 
but didn't have love, I ain't gained a thing. I have not gained a thing. Paul's point in using these extreme examples is simply this. If you want your marriage to go the distance, because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the context of marriage. If you want your marriage to go the distance, if you want that happily ever after marriage that every couple's thinking about on their wedding day, right? When you shared your vows with your, at that time, fiance, now spouse, you didn't approach that day thinking, well, I'm going to give this a try and see how it goes. Did you? No, you were thinking you're in that for the long haul. No one approaches a marriage just trying to give it a try, although you wouldn't know that in this day and age. But no, everyone, virtually every couple who gets married does so with the intention of making that their only marriage. So Paul says, look, if that's what you want, then there's absolutely no room for any selfish motivation. Because when someone gives to get, they end up getting nothing from God. And that's tweetable if you want to. When someone gives to get, they get nothing from God. But the real question, the real question that we need to wrestle with this morning is what is have love? When Paul says, look, you can do all these noble, even sacrificial acts, but if you don't have love, it doesn't mean squat. So what does that have love mean? I mean, if we did a survey, if I were to go around the sanctuary here and, and ask how many of you, uh, how many of you have love? Well, I think probably everyone will raise their hand, right? Well, yeah, I'm pastor. I, I have love. I mean, I come here, I, you know, I'm, I come here on uh, once a month, work at the pantry. I, I kind of love our community. Our, our you know, our neighbor, uh, you know, they're, they're elderly and they don't get out much. So you know, I'll go over there and I'll rake leaves or I'll take them something to eat. So yeah, you know, I, I have love. So the problem is, when we think of that word love, we think of, we think of something like this internal thing that, that you know, that we kind of, yeah, you know, I've, I've got that. I've got that. But Paul says, that's not the problem. That's not the, thing, the type of love that I'm talking about. That's not the type of love I'm talking about. That's not what Paul meant when he was talking about this have love. And I have, and I don't have love. So Paul wants to make it clear to these first century ex-pagan Christians that this isn't an, an internal thing. This isn't an internal thing. This is not a vertical thing he's talking about here. He gets real practical. He says, when I say have love, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about stuff that you do, right? And then he gives us a love to-do list. And this is the part of the letter that many of you had, had read at your wedding, okay? In verse 4, 1 Corinthians 4, love is very patient. It's kind never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud. Paul says the kind of have love I'm talking about is this type of love. It's patient. It's patient. And here right away we see that, that, that third thing that happy couples know that we talked about that, that, that last week, that marriage is a submission competition, a race to the back of the line. That's, what that, that's kind of a reference to that, that being patient. Love is kind. Now this is an interesting word that Paul used here. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, it's only found a couple other writings of antiquity in their extra-biblical literature. Some translations say love defers, and I like that better because I think it better relates Paul's point. When we think of being kind, see, when we think of being kind, we think of someone who maybe was considerate enough to send us a text or a word of encouragement or maybe, maybe send us a, a note, a thank-you note or something like that. And, and, and that, that is kindness, don't get me wrong. But in the context of what Paul's talking about here, Kind has a much, much deeper meaning. It carries the idea of not retaliating, but being gentle and mild, even when provoked. Even when provoked. In other words, love postpones. Love chooses to, to push back, 
to put that hurt, that disappointment, that betrayal on the back burner for now and respond in gentleness and understanding. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Huh? Never jealous. It gets worse. It gets worse. Just letting you know. Heads up, all right? Paul says love is never jealous. Now, this jealousy isn't restricted to someone of the opposite sex. This is the type of underlying jealousy that sort of smolders underneath the surface of those marriages where, where, where the husband and wife let subtle and sometimes not so subtle, uh, subtle zingers fly back and forth, right? And then they try to justify it. Oh, I was just kidding. That ever happened in your marriage? Right. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You know what, because that's that quiet on the way home when no one's talking. Right. And the reason it's quiet is because you don't want to start an argument. But that sting sort of lingers underneath the surface of the marriage. And before long, the smallest thing can ignite it. You know, she's more talented. He's funnier than I am. He gets more attention anytime we're with other people. Or she's the life of the party. No. Don't, don't take that posture. He goes on, or envious. Love is never envious or boastful. Love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. Love doesn't try to, to one-up or shut up the other person. Hey, you thought her joke was funny? Listen to this one. All right. No, love chooses to let her shine. Love chooses to let him shine. Let her have her moment. Let him take center stage. Paul says the type of love I'm talking about is best demonstrated by being patient and kind, not being jealous, boastful, or envious, or proud. We touched on this last week. How, look, if God opposes the proud, how much more will we oppose or stay away from them? The have love that Paul's talking about takes the posture of never falling into the trap of doing or saying something that could be interpreted as being proud, haughty, or arrogant. He continues, verse 5, it does not dishonor others. In other words, love decides, if this is dishonoring to you, I'm not going to do it. I would be sinning against you to, to dishonor you. Whether I can find a verse to support my position or not doesn't matter. If it's dishonoring to you, it is off limits. I'm not going to do it. And then he continues, it's not self-seeking. Again, here's that preferring one another, out-submitting one another, move to the back of the line type of thing, doing whatever your spouse wants you to do. See, on Friday night, Sue wants me to be lover boy. I'm all over that. I'm lover boy. Saturday morning, she doesn't want lover boy. She wants lawn boy. She wants clean the garage boy. So that's what I do, right? He continues. Is not easily anger. This is for those of you who have a temper. Anyone? No, never mind. Part of the have not love that Paul's talking about doesn't get angry very easily. Doesn't have or, or, or give in to their temper. And then there's this next one. This is huge. This is huge. It keeps no record of wrongs. And here's another one of those, who would do that? This is that, this is that give all you have to the poor category, right? Keeps no record of wrongs. Are you kidding me? Right? But I've got to tell you something here. Even if you have a hard time seeing you do this, okay, even if you can't picture yourself keeping no records of wrong, let me ask you this. Wouldn't you love to be in a relationship with someone who could do that? Wouldn't you love to be in a relationship with someone who could do that? I rest my case. He goes on, verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. We'll come back to that in a minute. 
After going through this list of what love doesn't do, Paul concludes with a sort of rapid fire, da 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 list of what love does do. He says in verse 7, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, the interesting thing about this list is how one of them is really totally dependent on the lovee, not the lover. In other words, see, I can always protect a person even if they're in the wrong. I may not want to, but I can always do that, right? And I can always hope that things are going to get better. And, and, and I know there's going to be struggles along the way, but I can always push through those and, and persevere. I can always persevere. But always trust, I don't know, man. I mean, that's a hard one. I mean, come on, Pastor. Even if someone could, could do that, should they? I mean, isn't that kind of being kind of naive, right? In the Greek text, the original language in which Paul wrote this, that phrase, always trusts, is more accurately translated, always believes, or, watch this, believes everything. In other words, this type of love automatically defaults to trust. And you know what? I really can't emphasize how important this is in a marriage. That is so huge in a marriage. Let me illustrate it this way. In every marriage, from time to time, gaps appear. And by gaps, I'm talking about what happens between what we expect someone to do and what they actually do. Uh, yeah, I'll, honey, I'll make sure I'm home at 6 in time for dinner. And then something happens and they don't show up till 6.45. Or, or yeah, I'm, I'll make sure I get that done before you get home, honey. And then you get home and guess what? It, it didn't get done. Any couples relate to that? No? In every marriage, in every relationship, there are expectations, and then there's what we actually experience. And when that happens, listen, when that gap that's created by what we expect and what we experience appears, we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. And usually, we don't even realize we're making the choice at that, tone, at that time, in that moment. Because to us, it feels more like a response or a reaction than a decision we make. Every time there's a gap between what we're told someone was going to do or what they led us to believe they were going to do and what they actually did, whenever things don't line up, we choose, listen, we choose what to put in that gap. That's on us. And we have two choices here. We choose to believe the best. You know, I'm not sure why he's late or I don't know why she didn't follow through, but you know what? I'm sure they've got a good explanation. And when I get all the information, I'm sure it will make sense. Or... We can assume the worst. Well, she did it again. He did it again. You know, I, I actually kind of expected that. I really did. That's how it usually is. But here's what you need to know. Happy couples choose to believe the best. They choose to believe. Why? Because this is what have love is. It means to believe all things. It's a choice that we make. Now, granted, at the time, in the heat of the moment, it doesn't feel like you have a choice to make. In fact, it feels like the choice has been made for us, right? Because every time there's a gap between what I was told, what I was led to believe, and what I was promised, and then what, actually, what I actually experienced, he didn't come through, she was late again, I don't know where he is, she does this all the time. Every time there's a gap, we decide what to put in the gap, and the sooner we accept the fact that it is our choice, the sooner we embrace and own that, the better off our marriage will be because happy couples choose to believe the best until they just can't believe the best anymore. Now, granted, there are obstacles 
to this idea of believes all things. I've been doing this a long time. I'm not naive. I know the pushback here, right? But there are a couple of obstacles here and two that I think of. The first one, and this is huge, uh, the first obstacle is our experience, right? Our experience. All those times we've been burned or hurt in the past because this isn't something new, Pastor. He does this every stinking time, every time, right? Or she does this, like clock, you can set your clock by it, Pastor. She does this all the time. So our experience is one obstacle. The other obstacle here is our baggage, what we bring into the relationship. Because let's be honest, we didn't show up in the relationship as a blank slate. No, 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 no. We showed up in the relationship with all of our stuff, all of our hurts, all of our disappointments, scars, and insecurity. And because of that, there are certain behaviors that trigger certain responses in all of us. We can't help that. We can't help that. But here's what I want you to hear. Even with all your junk, even with all the baggage that you bring to the marriage, and even with all the inconsistency of the person that you love, it's still on you, and it's still on me. It still comes down to a choice that we make every single time. So with all of that in mind and all that is kind of set up, I want to now go back and look at two or three of these verses that we went through really quick. Love does not delight in evil. This is kind of a tricky one. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. You know what that means? That love isn't trying to catch the other person doing something wrong. That love isn't building a case against the other person so they can step in and say, aha, gotcha. Right? No, Paul says love doesn't keep score of the past. Instead, he said that that love always protects. Protects from what? Love always protects the relationship from suspicion. Love always protects the relationship from a lack of trust. Love knows that whatever I choose to put here will impact the relationship. Yes, this is what I thought they were going to do. Yes, they didn't do what I thought they were going to do, right? They're going to have to deal with that. We'll have to talk about that. But what I put in the gap will impact the relationship perhaps as much as the gap that was created. Love always trusts, he said. Love believes all things. In other words, love chooses a generous explanation. Love comes up with a gracious explanation for whatever happened that created the gap in the first place. Then he says, love always hopes. I love that. Love always hopes. Love trends positive. Love trends upward, right? I'm not, I'm just, I'm not just going to allow myself to go negative. And then finally, love always perseveres. The word perseveres, as I said earlier, indicates or implies resistance, that there may be some doubt. There may be some things from the past that come roaring into the future. But even then, love decides to do whatever it takes to create an environment of trust. Not suspicion, but trust. And the reason this is so important, if you're always suspicious of your spouse or their motives, I need to warn you, you're actually creating a self-fulfilling prophecy when you do that. Because suspicion creates an environment that sets the other person up to fail. Think about that. Suspicion creates an environment that sets the other person up to fail, fall into the trap that you laid for them through your expectations. Paul says, have love, chooses to trust anyway. So here's the question, based on your personality, based on your experience, based on what you know about yourself, what do you do? Which way do you go? Do you believe the best about your mate, or do you assume the worst? Which way do you go on that? Do you believe the best when there's a gap? 
Do you find yourself going, you know what, I don't understand why, but I'm sure there's a good explanation? Or are you the person that's like, okay, he better have a good explanation. She better have a good reason for this. I'm already ticked off. I don't have all the facts, but I don't need all the facts because I know how they are. They've done this so many times before. So when they get home, when he gets home, when she gets home, I'm going to let them have it. In my experience, I believe we have two options here. We can choose to be generous in our patience and understanding and choose to believe the best about him or her. Or we can delight in uncovering mistakes. We can feed on suspicion and speculation. We can, we can assume the worst and embrace doubt. So there's that. Go for it, right? But let's say that you do go that route. Let's say that you continue to be suspicious and expect the worst in your spouse. And then one day, your son or your daughter just got engaged. And they come to you. And they're asking for your input and advice. What advice are you going to give them? Well, honey, men are just dogs anyway. So just lay a trap, and they'll step into it eventually. And then you can say, aha. Or say, well, son, I got to tell you, it might work out, but you got to be on your guard because then women, they'll burn you every time. They'll let you down. They always do. That's just how it works. Is that the type of marriage advice that you're going to give your kids? Or you could say this. You could say, you know what, son, hon, when there's a gap, and there's going to be gaps, I'm just telling you, marriage has gaps. Just, just be warned. But when there's a gap, you get, to, you get to decide what goes in the gap. That's on you. You get to choose that. Right? And you're always going to come out better if the habit, if the pattern of the relationship is always believing the best. That's my advice to you, right? So here's your homework assignment. And as hard as this might be for some of you, because I understand some of you have good reason to be suspicious, but just for this week, okay, just for this week, I want you to decide to fill the gap with trust. Why? Because have love, the type of love Paul's talking about here, always believes the best. Even if it's nine times out of ten, there's no good excuse for what he did or what she did. No, no, no. Just for a week, you decide, you know what? Before I get all the information, before he calls, before we get together tonight, I'm going to come up with a generous explanation, and I'm going to believe it. I'm going to choose to believe my own explanation for his behavior, for her behavior, just for a week. I'm going to choose to trust. So to sort of put a bow on this series as we wrap it up, I want to read Paul's definition of not just love, but go the distance love, happily ever after love. This is 1 Corinthians 13. 1 through 7, in the message paraphrase. Paul says, if I speak with human eloquence and an, an angelic ecstasy, but don't have love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr but don't have love, I've got nowhere. 
So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for the others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a, a swelled head. Doesn't force itself, force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Doesn't revel when others grovel. Takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Puts up with anything. Trusts God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps going to the end. It's a pretty amazing type of love, isn't it? When you create an atmosphere of trust, you create the environment of acceptance. And look, all of our hearts are drawn towards acceptance, aren't they? We're all drawn towards acceptance. Now, does this mean you don't have a difficult conversation? No. Of course you have those difficult conversations. And when it is the same thing over and over and over, of course you talk about it. But as soon as the conversation's over, you just get right back to it because that's the past. I'm not keeping score because happy couples know that believing the best is a choice. And it's a choice that they can make every single time they decide to choose it. Bow your heads. Let me pray for you. Lord, even though we're concluding this series on relationships this morning, I pray that those couples that have engaged with us over the past few weeks would continue to apply or begin applying these truths and precepts to their marriage that we've looked at. And as they do, Lord, I pray that you would honor the promise of your word that says it will never return void, but will accomplish what it needs to do in the hearts of these couples and the homes that they represent. For those relationships that are already good, make them even better, bring even greater happiness. For those marriages that might be struggling right now, bring grace and guidance as they look to you. And for those relationships that might be on the brink of blowing up or falling apart, I pray that you would bring a miracle of restoration and hope as only you can do. And if there's anyone here this morning, single or married, and you've never taken that first step of faith by putting your trust in Christ, Here's what you need to know. You need to know that Jesus loves you. He really does. His grace, his mercy extends beyond any of your sins and failures. No matter how big or how bad you think they are, how great they might be, God loves and cares for you so much that he sent his son Jesus into this broken and messed up world to pay the price and penalty for your sins and mine. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages of sin. That means we earned it. We weren't falsely accused. We earned our death sentence. The good news is God paid the penalty for us. All we have to do is receive it. How? By accepting what Christ did for us on the cross. It's as simple as repenting, asking God for forgiveness of your sins, and believing in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we do, when we acknowledge that to God, He'll be right there ready to receive us as his own. doesn't matter where you're at, at your life in this point. You could be as low as low can get still. Even if the Lord has to reach way down, he will, and he'll pick you up. Jesus can be your Lord and Savior right now. Just take a moment, pause where you are, pray this simple prayer. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I need you to come into my life. 
wash me, cleanse me of my sins so that I can be right with you, in a right relationship with you. I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is your son and that he died for me. And now I choose to accept him as my personal Lord and Savior. Come into my heart, come into my life, fill me with your spirit so that I can begin living my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen.